Alrighty, good morning and welcome to uh, Bible class this morning. It's time to get started. I know we're on our altered schedule today, which is why I got sidetracked and talked to too many people and am a few minutes late. It's in the sacristy taking my vestments off and Pastor Clemmer runs in and says, hey, they rang the bell and if you don't start teaching, everyone's going to run away. So, so here I am. Uh, hopefully you all have a red sheet. Uh, you got on the way in. If not, you'll want to grab one real quick. Unless you already have the Bible verse and the catechism memorized, which, is, which would be great. But All right, so, uh, so we'll start here with the red sheet. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, so, um, so when I, at the beginning of the school year, when we started doing the congregation at prayer here, my goal was to get through the six chief parts uh, during the weeks of the school year, and it worked out absolutely perfectly, uh, surprising enough. At least I was surprised when I got to the last full week of school and we were on the fourth part of the sacrament of the altar. I was shocked. I was like, no way this worked out so well, but it did. Um, and so uh, at that point, uh, the goal was to tailor the readings for the week uh, to the sections of the small catechism, right? So when we were uh, on the passages, of, when we were going through the Ten Commandments in the catechism, uh, we, were, we, were, we were having readings that addressed each of the commandments. Um, so I got to the summer, I'm like, well, I've got to find something to do for the summer. Um, so what the summer affords us the ability to do, again, surprisingly quite perfectly the way it lines up, um, is that so for the catechism, we're going to go through the table of duties. But the table of duties is just Bible verses. And a lot of the stuff that would correlate well with Bible verses that we covered, Bible passages rather that we covered during the year, um, so I had another idea, and I thought, and so I, I calculated the days until summer ends and school starts again, and then, uh, then I looked and saw that almost exactly, we'll have to adjust a little bit, um, that we can read all of the, if, we, if, you, if you keep up with one chapter a day, we can read all of the Pauline epistles between now and the start of school at the rate of one chapter a day. Um, so, so the readings now going forward are just going to be uh, until we start the school year, they're just going to be the Pauline epistles. Um, so this week we have the first seven chapters of Romans. And I think that will be advantageous. Uh, I think we're fairly familiar with a lot of individual things from the Pauline epistles. Um, but I don't know how well, at least this is, I mean, some of this is confession for my own part, right? Um, how well that, um, how often we hear an entire epistle from one end to the other, I mean, even just on consecutive days. Um, but it is really useful, right? Because Paul is, he's a smart guy, he knows logic. 
So Paul is really employing, in a lot of cases, very straightforward, logical arguments. So if all you know from Romans, uh, Romans is chapter 6, where he says, um, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound by no means, and he launches into his baptismal discourse. Well, if, you've, if you don't know what happened in chapters 1 through 5, it's kind of difficult to really grasp the, uh, the, the totality of what Paul is trying to get across in Romans 6. So, or, and I think the other big one is, I think we read 1 Corinthians 11 in a vacuum because we like to use it as our proof text for the Lord's Supper, which is fine. It teaches the Lord's Supper very well. But if all you know is the verse, uh, all you know is 1 Corinthians is chapter 11 in the verse, uh, whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Well, if you don't know what Paul has said for 10 chapters previous, um, it's hard to really grasp what, on the basis for which Paul is arguing uh, for sacramental confession and sacramental unity. Um, so I think this will be, I think this will be um, worthwhile and advantageous for all of us to just commit ourselves for the whole summer to read one chapter from the epistles every day and to do it in order. Uh, and uh, there's certainly benefit that will be derived from that. All right, so moving on then, on uh, the middle page, we'll, we'll go ahead and run through the Bible verse and the catechism for the, for the week, and then we'll pray and start our study. Uh, so the Bible verse for this week from Romans chapter 1, let's say it all together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek all right, and then we have the table of duties uh, that we're starting today. And again, I think this is um, very good. It is Luther giving us relevant passages of Scripture um, for whatever station in life we find ourselves. All right, so, um, and, and I, could, I could spend a lot of time describing how I think Luther structures the table of duties. Um, but then we'd spend our whole Bible class today talking about the three estates. Um, which would be a worthwhile Bible class, but we're not going to do it today. Um, so the, so the, uh, the table of duty starts with a section to bishops, to pastors, and to preachers, right? So, so the instruction doesn't really, in general, apply to, to, to each of you specifically, but it is useful for you to know what's expected of your pastors, right? Um, so we'll go ahead and read through uh, the table of duties. All right, so to bishop, pastors, and preachers. So let's read it all together. The overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. All right, let us pray. The Lord be with you. O oh God, on this day you once taught the hearts of your faithful people by sending them the light of your Holy Spirit. Grant us in our day by the same Spirit to have a right understanding in all things and evermore to rejoice in his holy consolation. 
Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the same Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, all right, we'll call it a day for this then. Um, again, I encourage you to fold this up, put it in your pockets, and, and at least, I mean, I would encourage you to use all of this for your daily devotions. Um, but again, I'd like to, to commit ourselves to reading through the epistles a chapter a day uh, through the summer. And also, I think, uh, please at least, you know, throughout the week, remember uh, those members of the congregation we're praying for. Um, so so uh, stick this in your pocket, take it home, and remember these, and remember these people in your daily prayers. All right, so a few announcements. Uh, again, next week is the voters' assembly after the 11 o'clock service. Um, so the, the youth are hosting their pizza lunch like normal, so come after the 11 o'clock service, eat pizza, and... Uh, and come to the voters' meeting. Um, VBS is June 5th through 9th. I, I'm just reading the sheet they give me. It says registration is closed. If I had to guess, you could probably still beg your kids' way in, though. I don't know. Don't, don't, don't quote me on that, but you can always ask. Um, but what we are still looking for is fifth grade, students fifth grade and up, through adults even, uh, to help with that. And so if you would help, uh, please contact Pastor Clemmer about that. And training for that will be a week from today during the Bible class hour. Um, also, for any of you youth families that are here, um, we are having a cookout this evening at my house. Uh, so you can come anytime, beginning at 5, and we'll go till about 8 or so. Try not to be too dogmatic about the end time. Um, so uh, we're providing burgers and hot dogs. So uh, if you are coming, uh, side or dessert would be nice. Um, and if you need my address, you can, it's all on the Synod website. The Synod doxes all of us, it's great. Um, um, but uh, it, there was a youth email that went out with my address in it, if you should need that. Theology on Tap is this Wednesday at 7 o'clock. I believe it'll be in the youth room. Um, and I'm assuming that they are still studying uh, the large catechism. I'm, I'm guessing they're still somewhere in the Ten Commandments. So, uh, so come, so, uh, come take, uh, take that opportunity. And then also, I'm not going to say all, all these details are for sure because I, so we have, we have these announcement sheets that get printed up for us by Beth and it's so nice of her. Um, but then sometimes notes get scribbled on it. And so there's a note on here about new member class that starts Saturday, August 26th. And it'll be in the morning. There'll be free childcare. Um, apparently, this says coffee is at 845 and class is at 9. Um, I didn't see what the note was, but there's another one of these sheets that's in the front of the church, so we can make these announcements at the end of church. And I saw that Pastor Clemmer had scribbled a bunch of things um, on the announcement about the new member class. So stay tuned for further details in case what I just said is not accurate. All right, I think that's all of our announcements. So let's let's jump back into our our study of the of the liturgy. Um, and I want to start by, by just a brief review of some of the distinctions that we made in terms um, the last time we met, which was two weeks ago. Um, so, so the first thing we did was we started with the word Gottesdienst, which is the German word that they used for, uh, to describe their services. And, and the word Gottesdienst literally just means God's service. And I think it's intentionally ambiguous, and 
And I think it's good for us to revel in the ambiguity about whether God's service means um, God serving us or us serving God. It's important for us to know that the primary thing in the divine service is that God serves us. That is the most important part. Um, that we do not come as though we have something to offer God that he needs, but rather that we come as those who need things from God and to receive his gifts, uh, forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. However, because the term is ambiguous, there is, of course, an aspect of the divine service where we serve God, right? With our prayer, our praise, our thanksgiving. And we're actually, we're commanded to serve God, right? We are his children. We are his people. He has redeemed us from sin and death. It's as Luther says in the second, in his explanation of the second article of the creed, right? He says, um, God has re Christ has redeemed me from sin, death, and the devil by not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood, his innocent suffering and death, in order that what? That I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him, right? Um, so sometimes I think... Um, the reason we harp so much that God serves us in the divine service um, is because there are those who would perceive of church as primarily something we do to, for God. And we don't want to fall into that camp. But we don't want to fall off the other side of the horse and say there's nothing about the divine service by which we, we serve God. There is, all right? And it's actually commanded that we do so, all right? All right, so we had God esteemed. And then even with God esteemed, right? Um, so normally when we say divine service, what we mean is the, the Sunday morning service in which the Lord's Supper is given. That's how we use the term. Um, our German forebears who are using the term Gottesdienst used the word Gottesdienst for every service that they had, even uh, a matins or vespers service was where there wasn't the Lord's Supper. And the way they distinguished the service with the Lord's Supper was they called it a Hauptgottesdienst or a chief divine service. Um, and so again, that would, that would require us to somehow convince the whole... The, the good thing right now is across the Synod we have, it's pretty much accepted that, that the term divine service means the service of Holy Communion. And we have this unity and it's not worth disrupting it to try to like make a nuanced point. But, but just, for the, just like for the historical point that... Because, because the reason they would call every service God is deeds or God's service is they recognize that God is serving them and we are serving God in even a service without Holy Communion, all right? So that's, that's, so that's that for what it's worth. Um, so other distinctions in the, as it relates to the divine service or the Gottesdienst, uh, the next distinction we, I wanted to make was this distinction between, this marker is junk, um, see if blue looks. Ah, yes. Right and ceremony. Does anyone remember the difference between right and ceremony? What's a right? Does anyone? Yeah, it's the words. So the right is the words, all right? Um, and then, so the actual words that we say. And so if right is the words, then ceremony is, I don't know, it's maybe kind of self explanatory. What is ceremony then? How the words are carried out, right? Um, so where you stand, where you face, what you wear, um, all this sort of stuff, how you hold your hands, how you hold your feet, all of that belongs to ceremony. And something I didn't get to a couple weeks ago that I should have is um, 
we, there is a distinction, even in your Pew Edition hymnals, even in the bulletins, this is why we print bulletins in color. Um, I just gave it away. There's a distinction uh, that you will see between rite and ceremony. How do you know if something is rite or if it is ceremony? Does anyone, anyone know this? We have a bunch of hymnals in here. I haven't really read hymnals. Okay, rite is written down, but so is ceremony, usually. Ceremony is written down, but you're not supposed to say the words for ceremony. And how do you know what words you're supposed to say and what words you're supposed to just do? In italics and red, and red is the big deal, all right? Um, so the right, and then, so what color is the right written in? Black, all right? So right, uh, this is denoted in our books, it's in black. The ceremony is written in red, which is why, okay, we do actually say please stand. Uh, we actually give you that, that, we actually read out that ceremony. Um, but it's, it's why after the opening hymn, I don't get up there and say, all may make the sign, of, I don't tell you, all may make the sign of the cross in remembrance of their baptism, right? I just say in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I let the red instruct how I do it, right? The red, the red in my book tells me that to make the sign of the cross over the people, all right? So we have ceremony, or rite in black, ceremony in red, um, and because the liturgy, most of like the, the richest history of liturgical, of, of the liturgical development was in the Latin-speaking days, and so those red parts that you see, we actually call them rubrics. Uh, and it's from the Latin word ruber, which just means red. All right? So rubrics, the red things. All right? So we have rites, words, ceremonies, rubrics. Um, and so sometimes you'll hear pastors maybe describe themselves as a, um, so if a pastor wants to say, I do things according to the way the hymnal says to do them and I'm not up there spitballing and making things up, what a pastor, uh, a, a lingo that you might hear from a pastor is, oh, I'm, a, I'm a say the black, do the red sort of guy, right? That's how I describe myself, right? Um, and that's usually, right, uh, if you wanted a, if, 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 if someone, for some reason, we ha got a pastor here that walks through the door and he's supposed to lead a service, and we find out that he's never led a service before and has no liturgical training, at which point he shouldn't be a pastor. But let's just, for the hypothetical, say, say that, that, that we, have, we find ourselves in that situation. I'm supposed to tell him how to do the service. I'd hand him the binder and say, just say the black and do the red. Like, that is like the quickest crash course in how to carry out the liturgy. Say the black, do the red, all right? Uh, all right, so we have rite and ceremony. Uh, and then the other, the other big distinction we made a couple weeks ago was between ordinaries and propers. All right, so uh, do we remember the distinction between ordinary and proper? Sometimes the church, part of the church here, sometimes a lot of the propers are specific to this day, right? So next week, we won't read again from Acts 2, at least not the part we read this week, uh, right? So, that, so the ordinaries are the things, the ordinary of the divine service are the things that we do 
every week. And historically, there are five ordinaries, five things that never change. Um, and we have, in our time, we have a couple more ordinaries. But the first ordinary, the first thing that you, if you're going to have a divine service, you're never, ever going to skip this, is the Kyrie. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Now, historically, there might be some variation if you're going to do a threefold Kyrie, a ninefold Kyrie, whatever it is, but you're not going to have a divine service and not do the Kyrie. Second ordinary is the glory and excelsis. I left the supper today. All right, so again, glory be to God on high, and then the, that, the rest of that hymn, uh, mostly written by Ambrose. Uh, again, you're not going to have a divine service without the glory and excelsis, unless you're in the seat there. This is the one ordinary with, a, with an asterisk. Unless you're in the seasons of Advent or Lent, because they're penitential. Beyond that, if you're if you're not in one of those seasons, um, you're never going to have a, a divine service. At least not a not a not a chief divine service on Sunday morning. You're not going to have one without the glory and excelsis. Third one is the creed, and by creed uh, they mean the Nicene Creed. The Apostles' Creed is used for the daily. Um, for the daily offices, the prayer offices, but for the divine service, the chief divine service, you're always going to say the Nicene Creed. Fourth ordinary um, is the Sanctus. And the fifth ordinary is the On You Stay. So that's, those are the five ordinaries. And, and, and think about uh, and the reason it's so important to have a set of ordinaries like these um, is because when you think about the history of the church, what is something that we assume that was, maybe this is too vague, but I'll ask it anyway. What is something that we assume that is just not the case for most of history? Precisely, illiterate public, right? Um, so, Throughout history, priests, the priests could read, you know, they're educated. Throughout history, most of the public is illiterate. They can't read. And so if they can't read, right, so, so they couldn't walk in here at Bethany, grab a bulletin, and, and follow along. If, you know, most people in America today, you know, above the age of six or seven, could walk in here, grab a bulletin, and follow along, even if they had never set foot in the church before, because we're a literate society. Um, but when you're not a literate society, you can't go changing things every week on people who can't read. Otherwise, otherwise there, there's nothing in which they can participate. Now, by Luther's time, most of the participation had been taken away from the laity anyway. But that's not the case throughout broad-speaking church history. That's one of these abuses that crept into the Roman church uh, that became very commonplace by the 16th century. Um, but, but by and large, it was assumed that the people would be participating in the liturgy. And for that to happen, there needed to be ordinaries, stuff they did every week, so that once they learned it, they could be sure the next week when they walk into church, even though I can't read, I know that this is the part I say and I know how it goes. All right? Now, functionally speaking, we have a couple, one significant 
other sung ordinary, and it's after the Agnus Dei. And this is a Reformation um, innovation that was good, and, and, and we'll talk about that as we go through the parts of the service uh, in the coming weeks. Um, but the, I guess our sixth ordinary, we might say, is the Nook Diminis, right? Lord, now let us thou thy servant go in peace. Um, Luther transplants that from uh, the daily order of Compline and plunks it after, and plunks it after uh, the distribution of the sacrament. Um, and, it, and it works there so theologically well. Um, Luther had a lot of kind of weird liturgical ideas, most of which we don't do. Um, but, but that one was so genius that even, like, even after Luther dies and, and the Lutherans are like, yeah, we're not going to do most of Luther's weird things, they, they absolutely stuck with the Nuptivitas. All right? So those are ordinaries. So, um, and again, ordinaries tend, we, the way we think about ordinaries are these big, big, long things. There's certainly responses that are, you could say, are an ordinary, uh, right? Like the salutation, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit, right? That's an ordinary, it always happens, but it's being just a little versatile response like it is, it doesn't, it's not typically listed among uh, the other five ordinaries of the divine service. So then we have propers, which are things that change week to week typically, right? So uh, the intro, it's a proper. We don't do the same intro every week. Uh, uh, the, the collect of the day is proper. Old Testament, epistle, gospel, all propers. Uh, other, another, maybe we don't think of it as part of the liturgy per se, another, another whole set of propers that tends to change week to week. The hymns. Hymns are propers, right? We don't, right? These are the hymns that are ordinaries. Uh, so we have a, uh, I, I could be wrong, but I'm guessing we're not singing Come Holy Ghost God and Lord next week. We could, it's a great hymn, but we're going to sing something else, right? We're going to sing something that's fitting toward the day, right? So we have ordinaries and propers, and these are, again, what make up, what make up the divine service. So in your hymnals, what we give the laity, if, if so if we didn't print out, because we print out bulletins here, most, you all have pretty much a full set of propers. If we didn't print out bulletins and we were just using hymnals, you guys wouldn't have the propers uh, because you would need a, well, you would need what, what's called a missal, uh, a book designed to carry out the mass, right? Missa is Latin for mass, and so you need a missal to carry out the mass. Uh, and it'd be a, everyone would have to be toting around a book about yay thick if we wanted a book that we could publish that had all the propers in it. And, and usually the missile doesn't even have the hints. So you would need every, if, if, if we wanted you to have the propers and the hymns, you'd need like three books in front of you and they'd be huge. So what you, if we were just using the hymnal, what you would have in front of you is just, it's just the ordinaries, the ordo is sometimes it's called the order of service, all right? And it's indicated where the propers would go, but if we just had the hymnals, you would not have the text of the propers. All right, so that's kind of a quick review. Any, any questions about, about these, dis, these key distinctions? Uh, and I think this is good because it just gives us language for how to talk about, how to talk about matters liturgical. Um, so as far as, so, so what I want to do today, and I've gone back and forth about whether or not I want to do this, but I think I do. Um, 
is as concerns ceremony, there are ceremonial things to be considered before we even talk about this, like the, um, the carrying out of the divine service, properly speaking. Uh, and what I mean by that are things like architecture and vestments. Right? These are ceremonial matters um, that are, that, are um, that, that of necessity must be, they, 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 they impact things whether you think hard about them or not, they are ceremonial matters that have an impact on the liturgical life of the church, all right? Um, so let's start, first of all, with architecture. What are some architectural, well, let's just think about here at Bethany. What are some things about our architecture of our sanctuary uh, that influence how we carry out the liturgy or what we believe, all this this, this sort of idea. What are, what are some features of our architecture at Bethany? Okay, so the place, so right, so the placement of the baptismal font is a liturgical question. There's not one right answer to it, but it is a liturgical question, right? So where to put the font? Um, and, 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 and I would contend that where you put the font says something about what you believe about baptism. So Bethany's font is rather unique, but it is designed to say something significant about what we believe about baptism. Um, so if you were to look at our font, what would you say are some, what, what, are thing, what are some things that we confess by the way our font is here at Bethany? Well, so, so think about where other places you could put the font. Okay, and I think that's another good legitimate option. So you could put it in the rear, and, and churches who put it at the very back of the church would say, our font is in the back of the church um, because uh, we pass it on our way. It's at the entrance into the church, and that's to remind us that baptism, when we were baptized, that was our entrance into the, into the church of God, right? So that's confessing something. If you want to see an example of that, you can go, to, go up the road to St. John and Wheaton. They have, a church, they have their font right in the back of their name. You pass it on your way in. Um, Where's another place you could you could put the baptismal font? And some churches have the baptismal font. Okay, and that's again I would say another good option, right? So it's smack dab in the middle of the church, right? That um, right. So we're almost gathered around the font, and it's the baptism that gives us unity as as Christians, right? We are all baptized into Christ, and so we have a baptismal unity, and we confess this by plunking. The baptismal font in the middle of the church. Where else have you seen a baptismal font in the church? Behind the altar. Man, you guys are giving like all the like all the good answers. Yeah, tucked away, covered up. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Thank you. No, behind the altar. That's my thanks for it. Where where have you seen that? I don't know if that's. Oh right, right, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, yeah, I've seen Baptist churches like with their big like font which is in, in some ways kind of a bathtub dunk tank kind of thing, right? Right, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you're right. I guess I've seen pictures of that uh, in, in those sorts of churches. Yeah, behind the altar. Where, where you normally can't see it. Yeah, the church I'm thinking of, they have curtains in front of it, and they only pull back the curtains. This is in my hometown. They only pull back the curtains on those, on those days when someone's being baptized. Other than that, you would have, and they call themselves a Baptist church, but most of the time you wouldn't know that there's even a font in the church. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah. But it's not in the nave, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, I know. And, and, and that's, that's not completely illegitimate. Uh, but yeah, so, so thank you, Donna. We have churches where you see the baptismal font. Now, now off to the side isn't necessarily, like, bad. Like, sometimes churches have it off to the side and they have a very ornate, decorated baptistry. But sometimes, I know of a, of a Lutheran church, uh, I have a friend a number of years ahead of me in seminary, he got to his congregation, and they kept their baptismal font, it was mobile, they kept it in the closet, except for when they had baptisms. Now what does that, so what, so what does that say? How does, because what you do is confessing something, whether you want, it, want to be confessing something or not, what does that say about baptism if you put the font in the closet and only drag it out for baptisms? What, sorry, oh, someone said something. Only when needed, right? So, right, so this, you know, this, we, we, we say all these things about baptism, but, but this place where God carries that out, not so important. Uh, we don't need to have this reminder for ourselves of our baptism, so we just keep it off in the closet. Uh, right, and so, but we have our font, it's in the front, in the middle, we have multiple pools, and so this confesses something about baptism. We have you know, we actually have water running through our font constantly. Um, so yeah, so architecturally, what we're confessing is baptism, important, permanent fixture in the, you, like if you wanted to move the baptismal font, you'd have to pay a construction firm to come in and redo part of our building. You'd have to pay a plumber to like, to get rid of the plumbing we have going to the, like, you know, we, we've put our font, we think baptism is so important that when they designed the church, they put the font in in such a way that, that, that you're not going to move the font. It's just not designed to be moved. We are not going to have anything in this church without being forced to look at the baptismal font. And then we have a, very, a more unique font, right, because it's split into two pools. Um, the idea that, you know, we approach the altar, right, um, that, that we are made worthy to receive the sacrament of the altar, um, by means of our baptism, right? That those who aren't baptized um, are not yet fit to receive the sacrament of the altar, right? So we remember that by approaching the altar through the waters of the font, right? And, and there's more we could say about that. I think, you know, the idea of crossing the Jordan like the Israelites did or the Red Sea was also pretty, is also in mind there. So such it is. All right, so that's our baptismal font, an architectural feature. Um, it actually says something about our liturgy too, right? We actually, our, the placement of our font actually changes how we would normally carry out part of the liturgy. Has anyone notice what, what part of the liturgy is that? 
Confession and absolution, right? So if I, if I open the, my pastor, the book uh, with all my pastor rubrics in it, it says the confession and absolution may be carried out um, at the foot of the steps of the going up to the altar, right? So, um, right? Uh, it's, but it says it, it gives or can be carried out uh, near the baptismal font if it is placed in such a way that it's conducive to do that. All right, so if the baptismal font was a fixture where it was, I would stand in, I would stand still on the main level, but I would stand in the middle of the church, and just at the end of the procession, I'd simply turn around and do confession and absolution right there. Um, but our architecture affects what we do liturgically. So since the font is in a conducive location, I go stand, we go stand by the font for confession and absolution, right? Um, partly as a confession, like what Luther says, a confession is, uh, is a returning, an absolution that's a return to the font, right? Return to the blessings of baptism, all right? What's, what are other liter architectural things about Bethany that are significant? Yeah. Okay. The number of sides on the baptismal font? Oh, sure. Because I think there's three, I'm not sure. Is it trapezoid, actually? So there's four. Yeah. 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 So, so sometimes it's eight. I've run across a couple six-sided fonts, and I'm always a little bit curious about what that means. Uh, I, I actually did some digging and found out. So, so most baptismal fonts, right? Yeah. It, it, and, and to be sure, we could spend a lot more time talking about fonts. I, I do just for the sake of time. Want to move on from talking about baptismal fonts? So. Yeah. But, but numbers are significant too, right? Numbers are significant in architecture, right? So. At the seminary, Cranmer Chapel is shaped like a massive frame. Uh, it's a confession of the tree. What's another architectural aspect of Bethany, though, that's significant? Where the altar is. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, what are? Uh, so, can we elaborate on that about where the altar is located, why it's there, and what that confesses? Okay, we have a freestanding altar. So, what's the? Uh, so what's the alternative to a freestanding altar? Yeah, fixed altar against the wall. All right. So both legitimate things. Uh, I do have a preference, but I uh, I won't elaborate on it at the moment. Uh, it's lower than the seats. Right. Well, it's it's lower. It's actually a little lower. Oh, than most of the pews. Yeah, yeah. So that's actually a question about the. Right, the, the, the fact that our, our whole nave is like at going down at an angle toward the altar. Uh, all right, so what, yeah, so it's a little lower, but it's still elevated on steps. So it's still the idea visually is that it's elevated. Um, so so Diana mentioned that the location of the altar. So and I think most churches are probably like this. Uh, where is not all of our where is our altar located? That would maybe be a little bit different somewhere else. So it's freestanding, but it's not freestanding in such a way that there's seats behind it, right? So there, I, I know a couple churches where the church is kind of, where the altar is kind of smack dab in the middle, and there's seats all the way behind it, or there's at least the choir section behind the altar. Um, and again, I'm not gonna, I'm not here to pass judgment on that, but I think there's an, I, I think there is an idea behind the fact that there is nothing else behind the altar, even though if there's even though it's freestanding that we don't have seating or anything else behind the altar. Uh, because I think that what we're, what I would understand to be confessing by that 
is that the altar is the place where God dwells, where God comes to dwell with us. Um, and the idea, right, so Bethany isn't oriented toward the east, but um, it, is, it is worthy of note that when you're in a church, there are what I call liturgical directions. And that no matter what way, according to a map, your church is oriented, the altar is always east. The altar is always, liturgically speaking, east, um, because Christ comes from the rising of the sun. I don't, yeah, I, don't, yeah. I, I, have, I have no idea about that. I do know that it was, the architect put a lot of effort into trying to avoid sunlight coming in on people. Okay. Not only successfully, but <laughs> when, you have, when you have as much clear glass as we do, you can never be completely successful. No, so, so but for, for a long time, standard practice was to actually build churches such that the altar was in the east. Huh. And so, and so when we speak, so the altar, the idea is it's uh, liturgically east. Christ comes from the east. So the idea that there is the altar and behind that is from where Christ comes. So we don't have anything else back there. That is the place of Christ. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that you're making a bad confession if your altar is smack dab in the middle. You're making a, usually a good confession. That this is the center of what we do. Um, but again, just the architecture makes confessions about what we believe. Um, also that we... Um, the idea, so it's keeping, to focus on the altar for, a, for just a couple more minutes, um, that the altar is kind of, it's, it is the most important piece of furniture in the church. The most important piece of furniture. Uh, second to none. Uh, because that is, that is where the flesh and blood of Christ dwell uh, for us, right? That is where we have access to the flesh and blood of the Son of God. Uh, and, so, and so the altar is the most important piece, and because of that, we, we treat it with great respect, right? We, we decorate it, as in, like, we have pyramids that go on it, we have candles beside it, behind it, all sorts of things intended to, we have the massive cross right above the altar, all of this designed to draw the attention to the altar, right? This is the center, this is the most important thing in here, this is what, this is the most important thing we do. Any other architectural things about the altar? Any other, what other architectural things are there about Bethany um, that, oh, 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 uh, sorry, sorry, I wasn't actually quite ready to go to move on from the altar. So the fact that it's freestanding, right, what does that change about, so, so again, this is a liturgical question, because what does, how does whether or not an altar is freestanding, uh, what, what effect, effect does that have on the liturgy? Right, so, so the, a freestanding altar allows the pastor to face both the altar and the congregation at the same time. If your altar is against the wall, so if, if here's the wall and I have an altar right here and I'm the pastor, I can either face the congregation or I can face the altar. 
but I can't face you both at the same time. All right? And so that gets into another distinction, liturgically speaking, between what is called sacramental and sacrificial action of the pastor. Um, that uh, the pastor's been placed in his position, uh, in his office by God, to stand between God and the people. He's, in some ways, is truly a mediator between God and the people. Uh, not unlike Moses, and not unlike the apostles, right? Um, so Christ is the ultimate mediator between God and man, and then pastors are mediators between Christ and his people. All right, so that means sometimes I stand up there and I speak for Jesus to you. And when I do that, I stand with my back at the altar and my face toward you because I'm speaking to you. I speak to you the words of Jesus, like, I forgive you your sins. Speaking for Jesus, right? Or uh, the Lord be with you, right? It would make no sense for me to say the Lord be with you, because um, when I face that way, the idea then is that I'm speaking for you to God. All right. So when we pray the collect of the day, right? Um, and we're going to talk a lot about the salutation here in a few weeks. I think it's one of the most important. Uh, it, it's short, but I think it's one of the most significant pieces of our liturgy. Uh, but anyway, so when I pray the collect of the day, I am speaking according to my office to God on your behalf. All right? So I face God to do that. Uh, when, I, uh, when I speak the prayers of the church, again, speaking on your behalf to God. So I face the altar. Doing the readings, though. The word of God to you, right? So I face I face you, the people, all right? Um, now, when it comes to the sacrament of the altar, we understand that the bread and wine are not mere bread and wine, but that they're the body and blood of Jesus. And what is it that makes the bread and wine the body and blood of Jesus? This isn't a liturgical question so much as it is a doctrinal question. What makes the bread and wine the body and blood of Jesus? The words, all right? And Jesus is carrying out those words upon the elements. And so it makes no sense to have my back turned on bread that I wish to consecrate. So if the altar is against the wall and I'm celebrating the service of the sacrament, I will absolutely, every time, have my back toward the people. So I can be looking at the bread and saying, this is my body. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. All right, that is speaking toward the elements that Jesus is consecrating through me is my top priority. Um, because that confesses, it does, it, in that case, having my back to you confesses what I believe to be the most important thing going on here, namely that Jesus, by his word, is making this bread to be his body and this wine to be his blood. Um, and that, uh, and that, that, is, that is the most important thing going on here. However, and this is one of Luther's uh, liturgical ideas, and it didn't catch on right away. Luther mentioned it'd be nice to have the altars not against the wall so that uh, the pastors can face the people while they do the consecration. And Luther, there, there's a few things driving Luther's idea that that would be better. Um, one of them was the fact that 
uh, masses were used to be secret in the Roman Catholic Church. They wouldn't say the words of institution loud enough for the people to hear. So you'd have, you know, the Lord be with you, lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God, a number of other prayers. And then when it came time for the consecration, this is what you guys would experience if you were in a Catholic church back then. And then after about a minute of that, I'd turn back around and, and I'd say, the peace of the Lord be with you always, um, because they were saying the words of institution, uh, sato voce, which means uh, hushed voice. They were whispering them. They weren't, they didn't understand those words, that they, those were words that the people ought to hear. And Luther's like, that's, and Luther's like, that's incredibly wrong. The people need to hear the words. And so part of emphasizing that point was Luther saying, it would be good if we could stand behind the altar so that the people could more clearly hear the words of institution. This is my body. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. But again, Luther understands that it's important to be facing the altar for the words of institution. So Luther doesn't, Luther never recommends that if you have a fixed altar, that you grab part of the elements, turn your back on the altar, and come wave, one, wave half the bread around up here. Luther's solution was that the altars would not be fixed against the wall so that you could both face the altar and all the elements while also facing the people, right? Um, so yeah, so the fact that we have a freestanding altar enables us to make that confession that we that these are words that people should hear because um, Luther's big point against Calvin and those who would deny the presence of Christ in the sacrament are that the words of institution still stand firm against the fanatics. All right, so, so that the words of institution are the primary way by which we learn about the Lord's Supper and so that the people need to hear them and also the people need to hear them so that they know that the pastor has carried out his office faithfully. If the people can't hear this, uh, it's bad news. Anything else we want to say architecturally? That's all we're going to have time for today, but that's okay. Stained glass. Stained glass, all right. Again, not a commandment, but not required, but we have it. We used to not. We used to look like kind of a puritanical, like no art sort of church. Um, I'm glad that we've, over time, added the stained glass and it's been done very well. Um, what about chancel furniture, Dennis? What else is there up in the chancel? Communion rail, okay. So that there's something of a barrier, right, that separates space, right, that not all space is treated the same, so that before we enter the rail, we bow, because we understand that we are entering the space where Christ dwells with us bodily. Dennis, do you have something you want to add? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so we have we have several crosses in our chancel. We have that massive one up above the altar. That's I guess what we call a triumphant Christ. So he's his nails are not affixed to the cross, or his hands are not affixed to the cross, and he has them lifted in blessing, so that confesses that we believe that the crucified, right, he's lifting his hands as to bless us, but, but he's on the cross, 
So understanding that the crucified Jesus is the source of our blessing, but then we also have the processional crucifix where Jesus' hands very much are affixed to the cross where he's shown in his suffering and weakness. Um, confessing, right, the importance of 1 Corinthians 1, 14, right, where it says, uh, we preach, what, John? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, a scandal, literally, a scandal to the Jews, and moronic to the Greeks. Those are the Greek words, scandal and moron. The Jews think it's scandalous, the, Greek think, the Greeks think we're morons. But we have Christ crucified, the wisdom of God. There's another major piece of furniture in the chance we haven't touched on yet, Rich. The pulpit, right? Uh, and ours is movable, and that's fine. Uh, but it is, it's, but it's hard to move. It's not, you're not just going to decide one day that, oh, I think I like the pulpit better on the other side of the chancellor. You're not going to just go over there and, you know, casually pick it up and move it across. It's heavy. It's designed to stay put. Um, and it's ornate because it's designed to look the same as the altar, which is, we kind of have a trapezoidal theme at Bethany. I'm not really sure what it means, but everything's connected that way anyway. The baptismal font's a trapezoid. Uh, the altar is a, like the top, the mensa itself is, is a rectangle, but uh, you know, the front appears in the shape of a trapezoid. We have trapezoids on the pulpit. Um, so that these are all connected. Um, and the fact that we have uh, such an ornate piece of furniture to, from which to read the Word of God and preach the Word of God says that, and that we don't do anything else with the pulpit, right? We had graduation on Friday. We didn't speak during the graduation from the pulpit. Um, Luke Primitive gave an amazing valedictory address, um, but, he, uh, but he did it from a, a separate podium down on the floor, right? That we have a piece of furniture specifically dedicated to the preaching of the gospel says something about what we believe about the preaching of the gospel. That uh, God is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow, right? The pulp, God's word doesn't change. So we have this fixed piece of furniture here that doesn't move from which to proclaim that unchanging word of God. All right, so we're, we're about at noon. I'm assuming we want to break at noon. Um, any, any other questions? So we talked to architecture. The other thing I wanted to talk about a little bit today, and maybe I can do a three-minute version of this, um, is what the pastor wears. That's, an, that's a liturgical question, a ceremonial liturgical question that kind of takes place before the liturgy begins but, but confesses something about the liturgy. Um, and so the, the short version is the pastor wears all this stuff to cover up the man and extol the office. That's great, but that's relatively incomplete. But, but the pastor's vestments each actually have specific meanings, and that the pastor prays a set of prayers while he puts his vestment on, vestments on um, that actually describe the meanings of the vestments, right? Because I wear vestments that you guys, that you can't even see, but I wear them because they describe, um, they, they have meaning and describe my office. Um, so real quick, the first thing I wear is called an amis. Um, it's kind of, it goes around the chest. You can't see it. Um, Traditionally, they put the amis on their head while they did the rest of their vesting and then shoved it down uh, behind their neck. Um, and it represents the helmet of salvation. So you say, so as you put the amis on, you say, Place upon my head, O Lord, the helmet of salvation, that I may be defended from the arrows of the enemy. Right? So, Lord, protect me from Satan, that I might carry out your work as pastor faithfully and not under the temptations of the devil. Then we put on the white all, that's the, the robe, the white robe, and uh, 
as you put that on, right? So we're wearing black underneath, but as we put on the white all, we say, um, cleanse, my, or, uh, cleanse my sin white, O Lord, and purify my heart, that being washed in the blood of the Lamb, I may attain the joys of heaven, right? Um, so that I come as a pastor, not as one who is more perfect or more holy than the people, but I come as a redeemed sinner, and the whiteness of the all represents you know, wash me and I will be white as snow, right? So wash my sin white, O oh Lord. Uh, then comes the cincture, that's the rope that we wear around our waist. And uh, you say, uh, and the prayer is, gird me round about, O oh Lord, with thy purity, that I may be chaste in body and pure in thy service, right? So that uh, this is a symbol of purity, right? That we are to be self-controlled, that we are to right, maintain our chastity, and our purity uh, so that we can uh, serve the Lord with a clear conscience. Then comes a vestment that you probably mostly don't see called the maniple that hangs from the left arm, resembles a, the towel a Roman servant would wear. It's a reminder that we are, uh, that we are not lords as pastors, but we're servants. Um, and so the prayer for the maniple is, uh, grant me, O Lord, to bear the maniple of weeping and sorrow, right? The role of a servant is oftentimes weeping and sorrow, that I may later on, that I may joyfully reap the fruits of my labor, right? That, um, that there will be rewards, but they aren't now. For now there's weeping and sorrow because we're servants. Um, then comes the stole, uh, which underneath the chasuble is typically worn crossed, um, because that symbolizes that I'm under authority. And, it's, and then we pray, um, Return unto me, O Lord, the stole of immortality, which I lost through the sin of my first parent. And although I am unworthy to administer thy word and sacraments, yet through the merits of thy holy passion and death, grant that I may attain the joys of heaven. Right? So, um, right? so that there is a stole of immortality which we lost, but we ask God to return that to us. Um, um, and, and again, recognizing our unworthiness to administer the things of God, but yet, uh, but we do this through the merits of the passion and death of Jesus. And then finally comes the chasuble, um, which is a symbol of the presence of Christ. Uh, and, and the prayer is, O Lord, who hast said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, grant that I may be so clothed that I show forth the presence of Christ. So the the, the chasuble, right, being ornate like it is, it does draw attention. It, maybe it covers up the man, but it's meant to draw attention and to be elaborate, specifically because the pastor, according to his office, does stand in the place of Christ. And so we wear elaborate clothing because we are showing forth the presence of Christ. All right, that takes us over time. Any questions? Yes, please. No, get to. Yeah. Eva Gown, baby. The taller. But part of the reason was because that was their graduate colors. Because the ship, there were several ships came over from Germany to America. The ship that had all the vestments and the altar and everything else sank. And so. And and, I, and and to be sure, we don't want to be legalistic about any of this. God was 
God was absolutely active and working through our Missouri student forebears who were wearing tall, who were wearing black gowns and preaching things. Um, but that there is a rich history of the church, and that there's that we that we don't do any of this be, like I, we don't wear vestments because they're pretty, right? They, we make vestments pretty because they confess something and they have significance in themselves. They signify something else. But that, but that the chasuble, because it's signifying the presence of Christ, that's why we make it pretty. Yes, why? Yeah. Pastor, in addition to saying prayers and the garments, we also say prayers and take them off. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, honest, usually, actually, be, to be perfectly honest, I don't know if there are unvesting prayers. And to be completely honest, normally, I'm, what it's like what happened this morning when Pastor Clement, hey, the bell rang, we need to get moving. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, now, the th now, the thing that we do in, while we're investing, I don't know if the other pastors do this. I do it. I know a lot of this is something I was taught. Is that as you put the vestments on, we actually kiss each vestment as we put it on. Uh, pastors do a lot of kissing things. It's kind of weird. Uh, it's, it's weird in our current culture. Um, but it's a sign, again, to show affection, right? And to show uh, a serious and reverence, a seriousness and reverence. Uh, Right, it's the reason we also kiss the altar. The celebrant kisses the altar um, when he changes class. Yeah, I've never heard of unvesting prayers, although I have actually considered writing a new vesting prayer um, because the vesting prayers, and I have them posted in the sacristy there, um, they help me remember to make sure I actually put on all my vestments. Um, and so I've, I've really seriously considered writing a vesting prayer for the wireless microphone because it's happened before that I am fully vested. I mean, chasuble, manacle, stole, everything. Like, I've looked in the mirror, made sure it's all sitting right. And then, like, halfway to the back of the church, I'm like, I'm not wearing the microphone. But if there was a vesting prayer for the wireless mic, and it could be, it, I think you could have something that's totally reverent for that. Like, oh Lord, open my lips that the words which I speak may proclaim thy glory or something, right? I mean, like, something that the microphone is actually assisting you to do. Uh, but if we had that, I don't think I'd forget to, to put on my microphone. <laughs> Anything else? All right, well, the Lord bless your week. We're back to normal schedule next week, so we'll see you, see you all next week. God bless you. Yeah. Roman Catholic priesthood as part of the ceremony after they had, they had unvesting. Yeah. Okay. Prayers and everything. That's interesting. I've never, I, I, I have never come across unvesting prayers. I would never think to and, do and, that. And, and, and a lot of, a lot of, um, let, let me kill this real quick. Yeah, Otherwise, also, our conversation is going to go online.